If you've been looking for a happy place, you have found it. This is Live Happy Now. Welcome back. We are excited to have you here to the podcast that helps you find your true and peak happiness by providing you with positive psychology, powerful and relatable stories, and maybe a little bit of fun along the way as well. I am your host, J.R. Houston. So pleased that you continue to make us a part of your day or your week, wherever and however you may be listening. We also want to tell you about Live Happy Magazine. It is available on newsstands everywhere. They are, of course, the company that uh, helps put on this little podcast, so we appreciate all the fine work the writers are doing there. And we also want to thank our partner, Life Reimagined, and their website is lifereimagined.org. It is just chock full of resources to help you reach that high potential of happiness. And you know they say, as you awaken to the power of happiness, so do your dreams. So find out what's next at lifereimagined.org. In this edition of Live Happy Now, we're bringing you a conversation between Kim Yancey and Dr. Richard Sears. Dr. Sears is a board-certified clinical psychologist, the director of the Center of Clinical Mindfulness and Meditation, and is a clinical and research faculty member of the University of Cincinnati's Center for Integrative Health and Wellness. Let's begin with your definition uh, of, of mindfulness. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's a word that's just used commonly in the English language, of course, but it also has a lot of history and tradition, especially in Eastern cultures. Uh, and primarily what I'm using it with now is in my clinical work. So it starts to have certain definitions for how we would actually use this clinically. Uh, but basically, all it really means is paying attention. And this is sort of counter to our typical mode of operation, which is where we get into sort of an automatic pilot mode of existence, where we're, we're barely even aware of what we're doing. We sort of go through the motions, especially the older we get. You know, uh, when we're kids, boy, you can just fully be in the moment and you can really openly notice things and appreciate things. But as we tend to get older, we tend to live in our heads more. And, you know, sometimes we literally get on automatic pilot. You know, have you ever been driving your car and suddenly you notice, oh, wow, I'm home. I don't remember <laughs> the drive or how it actually happened. Uh, so this is about noticing when we do that and then putting our attention where we want it to be. So there's a conscious intentional choice about that. So certainly okay to go off in your head and think about the past and the future sometimes. But, you know, if we get lost in there and live there, we're actually going to miss out on the richness of our lives. And, you know, we're not going to be able to experience the actual moments of our lives because that can only ever take place in the present moment. And if you're always zipping off in other places in your mind, you're, you're just going to miss your life as it goes by. What are some of the critical things that research has shown us in this field? What can you tell us about the science behind it? I'm kind of concerned about many people might trivialize the importance of this. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. Because again, we, we all are born with mindfulness. It, it really is just paying attention, but it's, of course, on a continuum. So over time, we just get in automatic habits and we miss out on being able to pay attention in a consistent, reliable uh, kind of a way. Um, so what we know from the research is that, you know, continuous practice is what's helpful. You know, it'd be just like, you know, me saying, hey, this is a push-up, you know, and somebody's saying, oh, wow, I did a push-up once, what's next? Well, you just kind of need to do it over and over again, and that's what'll exercise, you know, your physical being in that case. And we find it's the same thing with mindfulness. You are literally exercising 
your brain. In fact, there's uh, some brain research where we can see a volume increase. In other words, your cortex, the parts of your brain get thicker after even just eight weeks of mindfulness practice. And one place specifically that's been found is called the medial prefrontal cortex. That means the very front of your brain, right in the middle. And this is an area that has to do with uh, emotion regulation and planning and judgment and uh, self-awareness and empathy. It's really got an amazing amount of things that it uh, helps modulate. And we can literally see this part of the brain get thicker with practice. So it's just like with physical exercise. If you move your muscles back and forth, the muscles get thicker over time. And the more you use these brain pathways, the more your attention wanders off and then you bring it back and it wanders off and it bring it back, the more you're literally exercising these brain pathways. And over time, they get thicker and stronger and more reliable. Do you think technology has hindered or gotten in the way of our mindfulness? And I mean, like smartphones and those kinds of things. Where, where do you stand on the technology and how that bombards and interferes or could take over our mindfulness? Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. You know, like anything else, technology is a tool and it can be a wonderful positive tool or it can really, you know, create a lot of problems. I mean, right now with technology, we're able to talk to each other and share this conversation with other people. I literally have my laptop open to talk to you, my iPad open, I've got my phone over here. And so, you know, these are wonderful, useful tools. The problem is, as I'm I think you're getting at is that you know, it's so easy to get lost in technology to lose touch uh, with reality. It's like we create a, a separate realm in our heads um, and suddenly we lose the capacity even uh, to fully appreciate what's going on around us or to notice the people around us to deepen our relationships to look at emotions and vulnerability and the richness of uh, all that goes with relationships you know on these social media websites are you know wonderful it's interesting that i can reconnect with somebody i haven't seen since i was a kid and yet there's sort of this illusion wow i've got a thousand friends but you know are they really friends in the sense of reciprocity and richness and deepness. So, uh, you know, I just think we need to bear in mind it's a tool, but how we use it's important. You know, I'm really wondering what we will as a culture, as as, as the human race, what we're going to be like 20 years from now, you know? And that's that, that's why I love your, your focus on mindfulness too. Yeah, and you know, what can happen is, uh, aside from all the wonderful things about technology, is it becomes a distraction because our brains are so used to jumping off to the next thing you know, we start to lose the capacity to be present. And you know what? Even to feel our emotions as they come and go. So this uncomfortable emotion starts to come up, which is just normal part of being a human being. And instead of the emotion just flowing through like it's supposed to, I don't want to feel it, so I'll pull out my phone and check my status updates and play this game or do that thing or check my email. You know, what can happen is we never process feelings. We never get into the richness of life. It, it becomes this constant distraction. And boy, the stress response just keeps firing off, right? It used to be you leave the office and you're done with work. And now I know people that feel like they have an expectation if they check their email at midnight, they better answer it right away. And so they're never off. There's sort of this 24-7 getting into things and getting worked up about things. So the stress response, which is just designed to be a short-term thing to give you energy and boost you through a crisis, 
ends up being this thing that goes on all the time and people have trouble sleeping and they have muscle aches and it can lead to all sorts of other health problems. So we definitely need that capacity to turn it off sometimes or at least to be more conscious. You know, am I choosing to look at my phone while I'm with my family or is it now an automatic habit and is it interfering with my relationships and the other things that are important to me? Mindfulness really plays over in so, well, in everything, in everything. I want to stay on this track around the practices. That's a powerful word you said, that it's it's a practice, it's a discipline. Can we talk about some of the disciplines, some of the things that you recommend and suggest to people to bring more mindfulness into the life each day? With a lot of this stuff, it's so easy to say, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense and I do that already. But really to make this a reliable thing, it it is a practice, as you said. So your brain is basically a product of what it's exposed to. So if you're exposed to constantly changing images on a TV screen or constantly checking things, your brain becomes sort of this rush and never really satisfied with anything kind of thing. So that capacity to just keep practicing more often coming back to the moment and a split second later you're going to go back off in your mind and think about something else okay so you notice that you did that and then bring your attention back where you want it to be now the challenge can be really making this a habit so you know what's ideal is if you can set aside even five or ten minutes a day and just say okay, and this time I'm going to turn off my phone. The world's not going to end in five minutes without me and give yourself permission to just be where you are. And whether it's a formal exercise where you listen to a CD recording of somebody guiding you through a mindful practice or just giving yourself sort of some open space to just let yourself be instead of constantly doing things, you know, starts to to reset yourself. So it's, it's ideal to have a steady daily practice of some kind, even if it's, I'm going to take a walk and instead of ruminating about work the whole time, I'm actually going to notice the trees or feel my feet and just let yourself be in the experience. Um, and then to start to let it seep into the rest of your life. Cause again, it's so easy to get caught up in the automaticity of what's going on. I had a teacher once say, you know, your homework assignment is to breathe six times a day. <laughs> I start laughing. What are you talking about? But his point was, can you even remember, let's say six times a day to stop and to take a breath and has this capacity to reset yourself back into what am I actually doing right now instead of being lost in my head? So it becomes a, a new habit that you can develop and you can funny enough even let technology help you with this uh, you know on my website we've got recordings and there's lots of recordings everywhere else for doing these mindfulness things there's even apps you can get on your phone that at just very random times you can tell it how often you want it to do this but at random times it'll just sound this very soft bell sound like and then uh just as that sound right there, it can be a reminder to suddenly pay more attention. So when you notice you're lost in your head, the app just sends off a sound, and then that sound reminds you to come back to the present moment. 
It's interesting that that phone, we could hear that phone ring in the background, and it, it really orchestrated this whole notion of mindfulness, of staying on task, staying where you are. For me, it was kind of metaphoric from the way that life just hits us unexpectedly. It's so easy for our attention to go someplace else unless we bring really bring that mindfulness, that state of mind present. How did you choose this field? It's us a little bit about your background, how you got involved in your interest to this area. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I guess if I go back far enough, it goes back to when I was a teenager and I wanted to be a ninja. Uh, in fact, as it turns out, I found Stephen K. Hayes, the man who went to Japan in 1975 and lived there and found the last living ninja grandmaster. And, you know, it's not at all what you see in the Ninja Turtle movies, of course. It's, it's really about self-development, not about hurting people. So, as I developed more in that, I really saw, boy, this is really all about the mind. So I got involved in some of the traditional uh, meditation types of practices. And, you know, I found them really rewarding and, and rich. And yet there was something that just wasn't quite enough for me in terms of modern society and the busyness and being able to stay engaged with the world. You know, it'd be, it'd be great if we could all retreat to a mountaintop or whatever, but we all need to earn a living and interact with people. So how can we really apply this in sort of a modern way and even to modern problems? So that's one of the things that later on drove me to uh, getting my doctorate degree in clinical psychology. So I was fortunate enough to get some really great training and a really broad training in the science and the brain science and how to work with things like stress and anxiety and depression. And it's just good timing for me personally to come into the field at that time because that's when the mindfulness research was just starting to come out. So to be able to have a depth in both of these areas and really put them together in a way that can make them really concrete and practical and useful because people will come to me and if I just say, oh yeah, you need to just uh, go meditate all the time. Well, of course, they might know that, but that's hard to find time to do that. So we've got to be really practical. How can we bring this into our lives moment to moment, or at least just a little more often instead of being this drastic change that we have to do? What, what are some of your personal your favorite ahas or uh, researched uh, realities around mindfulness that you like to share with people? Yeah, um, boy, it's hard to choose. There's so much coming out all the time. Um, one is probably what I mentioned earlier, the fact that we can see your brain, uh, certain areas of it get thicker, in, even in just eight weeks of practicing this stuff mm. really just blows me away. And actually, I'm involved right now with some research at Cincinnati Children's Hospital where we're doing fMRI brain scans before and after, in this case, a 12-week mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for children program. And it's just wonderful to see that there are actual brain changes in these kids just from practicing this a little bit. In particular, we see a strengthening of areas that have to do with what's called interoception. And what that means is the kids become more aware of their bodies. Now, that may say, seem a little weird at first, especially because these kids we were first studying all had anxiety. You know, wow, you wouldn't think you would want them to feel their bodies more if they had anxiety. But in fact, the feeling the body is where you identify the emotions and, and let them rise and fall. The problem with anxiety and stress is we get stuck in our thinking. Oh my gosh, I feel so stressed. And then you start worrying and then you worry about worrying and, you know, your mind goes everywhere. So these kids learn to just let it be in their body and sort of 
pass through. In fact, in this uh, same first round of studies, we found decreased amygdala activation, in other words, lower fear response when these kids were in the brain scan and they saw this picture that was just a little bit scary. So it's like their brain learned to feel the feelings, but the feelings pass through their bodies more quickly. And they learn what's called choice points, noticing choice points more often. In other words, kids sometimes get so caught up in reacting and in their emotions and in their thoughts, but over time they learn to identify, wow, I'm feeling this way right now. I can make a choice about what I actually do instead of automatically getting caught up. And that's a big thing, no matter how old you are, of recognizing, wow, my brain's going off in this direction, or my emotions are like this, or I'm dealing with this pain or whatever. Just notice it as it is, even if it's unpleasant, and making choices about what's important to you in your life, rather than just getting caught up in your problems. Where do you want to go? What choices do you want to make? What are three things you would suggest to parents to apply now, to start to incorporate with your children, to help them practice engaging mindfulness? Well, you know what? The very first thing that comes to my mind is for parents to practice this themselves because there's nothing more powerful than modeling, you know, working with difficult emotions yourself and staying present with your kids. I'm embarrassed to even say this, but years ago, um, I was doing something on my phone and my two-year-old grabs my hand and points to her eyes and says, daddy, I'm right here. You know, (laughs) right, right. Yes, you are, sweetheart. Let me put this down and, and talk to you. Right. So for us to even notice and model is a really big thing. And a second thing is for parents to be present with kids, even when they're having difficult emotions. You know, a lot of us, unfortunately, are raised with this attitude of, we're supposed to control our feelings or turn them off, right? People say things like, stop crying, you're not hurt. So confusing to a child because when they are hurt and an adult tells them they're not hurt, they feel like, wow, either either I can't trust my own emotions or I'm supposed to turn them off. And so suddenly we develop a battle with emotions, right? And so we add struggle on top of struggle, So, you know, an ideal parent says, oh, I see that you're really sad, but here's still the answer to your question or whatever, right? So it doesn't mean we give in or they can still choose behaviors, right? And my daughter, when she was young, would say things like, I'm going to explode if I don't have a chocolate bar, you know, something Hmm. like this. So we can say, oh, yeah, you know, I really want one too. I bet that's really hard, but we're about to have supper. So no, you're not going to have a chocolate bar. So it's not denying the feeling. It's not getting them into a battle, but it's also setting boundaries. The other thing, uh, the third thing I would recommend with parents would be to engage with them more in activities. Now, depending on the age, you know, there's a wide range of ages. Most kids don't want to sit down and listen to a CD or do a mindfulness practice. But you know, if you just play a game with your kids, you turn off the TV or take a walk or ride a bicycle in a very real way. That's some of the best mindfulness practices you can do together. You can model that being present with each other in an active way. It doesn't have to be sitting still. You can model connecting 
by looking in their eyes and talking about how they're feeling or just uh, doing something that they want to do for themselves. So, so that's what comes to my mind as the recommendations. Oh, those are great, great practice. And be a model for your kids, be present with your kids and engage with them more. I, you told your little story that you, about your daughter said, daddy, I'm right here. <laughs> I, 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 I remember asking, I was on the floor with my daughter and I, um, she was just playing, you know, how you just r- rolling around, just, you know, and I said to her, I said, you know, what, what could I, what could daddy do to be more fun for you, Brianna? And, you know, all, she, what she said was what only a little kid could say you know, with this pure, you know, just clarity. She says, just color with me, daddy. Just color with me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm like, wow, you know, like that's, you know, it isn't, you know, just spend that time, color with me, do it with me. Uh, listen, this, this is fantastic. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that the audience gets before we end this session of Live Happy Now? Yeah, I would just say, you know, there's lots of resources out there. So, you know, people are welcome. I've got free recordings on my website if people want to go there. I, actually, if you just type in Richard Sears Ninja in Google, I'm sure that'll, that'll pop up. But otherwise, just even remembering to take that breath or, you know, set a timer or a bell once an hour. And just remind yourself to keep coming back to this moment. You know what? Even if you've got a busy day and you've got 10 meetings and 12 reports to write or whatever, you're just in this moment. You can't go to 10 meetings at the same time. You can't write 12 reports at once. So if we just remember to ask ourselves throughout the day, what am I doing right now? We can enrich what we're doing right now and as a very nice side effect the stress response will start to to lessen for us once again that's dr richard sears talking with live happy's kim yancey if you'd like to find out more information get a free pdf download of dr sears's taste of mindfulness you can go to livehappy.com slash mindfulness we encourage you to check that out we also encourage you to reach out to us, reach out to your friends with anything that you may have taken away from this conversation that you think you can positively apply to your life. Maybe you even got suggestions of some things you want to hear on this podcast. Here's how you can reach us. You can find us on Twitter at Live Happy. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Live Happy. Even reach out on Instagram by searching My Live Happy, or you can send us an email, podcast at livehappy.com. Doesn't matter. We want to hear from you, and we want you to share the positive vibe that come from Live Happy Now. That's going to do it for this edition. So for Dr. Richard Sears and Kim Yancey, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long and remember to always live happy.